Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Nilesh Mehta to discuss his article published in the July Critical Care of Medicine titled, Nutritional Practices and Their Relationships to Clinical Outcomes in Critically Ill Children. It's an international multi-center cohort study. Dr. Mehta is Associate Medical Director in Critical Care of Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and Assistant Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Mehta, I'd like to thank you uh, for joining us once again and make notice that this is a rather large study that provided a very large multi-institutional perspective on what the nutritional status is of children not only in the pediatric critical care unit, but what is the nutritional status of children prior to the point of actually being encountered in the pediatric critical care. Basically, what is the nutritional baseline? Uh, for a while, there have been single-center reports uh, describing our practices, and what is uniform is the uh, uh, overall inability to reach uh, uh, nutrition goals uh, in our critically ill children in the pediatric ICUs. A variety of barriers have been described, and uh, this has been uh, across the board from Australia, uh, Europe, and North America, and South America in terms of observation. In order to try and circumvent this problem, we thought the best way forward would be a larger study, uh, and hence uh, sought out a multi-center collaborative uh, approach. We aim to uh, examine nutritional practices in a very special high-risk group of children in our, in our ICU, uh, namely the ones who are undergoing mechanical ventilation for uh, a variety of reasons. There were two principal uh, uh, reasons for choosing this population. The first one is uh, based on ours and many other previous reports. It appears that mechanically ventilated children are at high risk of disease-related malnutrition. And more importantly, the second one being that it is this group where uh, we fail uh, quite uh, a lot in terms of uh, getting adequate nutrition on board. Our aims were mainly to look at uh, what is it that actually happens in the pediatric ICU? As you know, uh, like so many other things in medicine, there's a difference between what we think we do and what actually happens in the ICU. So the first uh, thing was to describe in great detail, prospectively, as to what is our bedside practice in nutrition support in this group, and then subsequently take it to the next level and examine uh, our uh, nutrient uh, variables, nutrient delivery variables in relation to clinical outcomes such as 60-day uh, mortality, and nosocomial infections. So let me ask you, initially one of the things that I was really surprised when I read your manuscript was the percentage of children that came to the pediatric critical care unit malnourished. Uh, it was a I, very high number. I agree. This is uh, perhaps the most startling uh, examination. Uh, we all uh, uh, have read the 1980s manuscripts coming out of Washington with Dr. Spolak and his group uh, where they described uh, a certain degree of malnutrition prevalent uh, in critically ill children. And it's now been three decades, and what's disappointing is that over these three decades, consistently, the number of children uh, who present with malnutrition has not changed a lot. What has changed, and as seen in uh, uh, the Table two of our paper is we now have a, a different problem, as in not just the undernourished, but also uh, patients with obesity. Uh, and I agree with you, uh, Jeff, this is uh, truly uh, revealing, and it brings to mind two things. One, that clearly uh, the ones that are on mechanical ventilator have a high uh, degree of uh, malnutrition uh, right at the outset, and it is 
it is this particular facet in PEDS ICU which needs to be uh, looked at right at the beginning so that we can dedicate resources nutritionally to these high-risk patients. Now, were these children that, that presented initially, I mean, everyone knows that in a lot of our pediatric critical care units, we take care of kids who have a lot of chronic disease. But it, was this a mix of children who were acutely ill that were previously at baseline health as well as kids with chronic medical conditions, or how does that blend out? That's a good question. Uh, if you look at uh, Table 2, we try to put into perspective um, at least one part of your question, which is uh, what were the diagnoses, and um, it, it is a good mix of uh, multiple uh, disease processes, including respiratory, cardiac, infectious, neurology. In terms of chronic illnesses, we excluded uh, children who either would have had a mechanical ventilation uh, uh, intervention earlier during their PQ course or were on chronic uh, uh, support at that stage. But in terms of disease processes, there was a good mix in patients who may have had uh, ongoing malnutrition but also some other infectious issues at home. The specific answer to your question would be that these were uh, within the first three days or at least within the first week of arriving into the PQ. So fairly acute large in a large number. And often you, you made some comparisons to the adult world and the, and the pediatric world, but as far as how these were initiated, it seemed the other thing that really struck me was that in those intensive care units that had protocolized methods of feeding the children, they seemed to have better outcomes in those units that didn't have a protocol. That's a good point. The reason we actually even chose to look at that was because uh, consistently over the last five years, many of our pediatric ICU colleagues from Europe and uh, in Atlanta at the Emory University, also our own center, have uh, made attempts to make our practices uniform, and in that attempt have made guidelines. Uh, I, I'm not sure if these are entirely evidence-based. Many of these are multi-professional consensus-based guidelines or so-called best practices, and people started reporting how they have improved their nutrient delivery with the use of these uh, protocols or guidelines or best practices aimed at making things uniform in their units. So we thought it, it's important to look at it, and we were very surprised. I'm not sure what this, this means. We tried to look into uh, this a little further by accounting for protocols and then adjusting uh, for uh, energy intake. So it's not that increased protocol usage allowed them to have increased energy and protein intake and hence improved outcome. That seems to be a signal which is not just related to nutrient intake, but perhaps the way a unit functions and chooses to have bundles or protocols. And again, uh, similar to the adult world, I'm not entirely surprised of this theme, uh, but it's something to watch for. So I don't know if we actually said it for our listeners who haven't had the benefit of reading your manuscript, that when these particular pediatric critical care units had protocols for feeding the children, those patients had lower infectious complications. That is correct, yeah. Um, the infection and uh, correlation with the nutrient intake is fascinating and is perhaps one of the big um, non-mortality parameters that we ought to examine with any intervention that we do in the ICU. And the adult world, specifically uh, Dr. Highland's group and uh, Villette et al. from Switzerland and then Dweer et al. from uh, Israel, these guys have started reporting significant reductions in infections associated with optimal nutrition, and we thought we ought to look at these as well. There was one other intention, uh, and that was the principle
principal hindrance to advancing enteral nutrition has been the fear for aspiration pneumonia. And uh, we, we wanted to make sure that whilst we examine the strategies or the ramping up of nutrition or the adequacy of nutrition, we also uh, document whether uh, improved nutrient intake, especially via the enteral route, is uh, associated with any increase in infection. So we were pleasantly surprised by uh, the association being in favor of especially units with protocols, but more importantly that higher enteral nutrient intake was not associated with higher uh, infection, specifically ventilator-associated pneumonia. Can we restate that again? That You're saying that with the higher use of enteral or parenteral nutrition that you had a higher rate of... of we did pneumonia. not, actually. So what I was saying is that uh, we did not show any correlation between the enteral nutrient intake and um, infectious uh, complications. Uh, the question about PNUs is, is relevant. Uh, I'm not sure whether this is uh, a trend uh, for several years, but we certainly saw that only 9% of patients were fed predominantly by the PNUs. So this study probably is not adequately powered to uh, examine uh, the association between parental nutrition and infections. But clearly there was no uh, association between enteral nutrition and infections. And one of the things I also found fascinating, I take care of burned children, and we, we think that we do a pretty good job trying to abrogate catabolism, and your paper does a really nice job for the reader to talk about some of the pro-inflammatory aspects of injury. But you found it, or you recommend significantly higher levels of protein than I think most people would recommend. In your study, uh, your patients had a protein level of what? So, you know, the prescription, if you look at it, uh, seemed to be uh, to the tune of 1.7 grams per kilo per day on average or, or in majority. But what they actually received was barely 43%. Uh, uh, and even if you add up enteral and parenteral nutri nutrient intake in patients who did get parenteral supplements, uh, it doesn't go beyond uh, much beyond 50%. So patients are receiving half of the protein that they are being prescribed. And that, that is fascinating. I think th that probably is a key feature for future studies wherein we've long associated energy and protein in a fixed combination in our formula. And while there may be controversies uh, about energy intake, especially who needs to have the energy intakes uh, fully ramped up and whether there are some adults who get hypocaloric intake, there is no controversy in terms of protein, at least in terms of delivering less than 50% of what was prescribed. I think maintaining protein balance is a key feature. Uh, and uh, the prescriptions, unfortunately, the recommendations, if you look at various societies, are not based on very robust research. We recently published a systematic review of all protein balance studies done in pediatric critical care. It was published this year in Journal of Pediatrics. And we found that, in fact, if you looked at those cohorts, only those patients where protein intake was more than 1.5 grams per kilogram per day, and also with an appropriate energy intake, uh, ever reached positive balance, and the rest never managed to achieve a positive protein balance. And if you believe that protein balance equals lean body mass accrual or prevention of lean body mass loss, then this is where we are falling way short. Your paper didn't get into this, but I'm sure that you have an opinion on it. It's, it has a huge study, 31 pediatric intensive care units, 500 patients. Um, how many countries were involved in this? I believe seven. So, three. I mean, huge, yeah. huge international trial. How did you learn about different assessments of, of nutritional adequacy in different patients, both at baseline and during therapy? 
That's a great question. This is probably the biggest uh, strength uh, of doing such a study, which involves two things. One, a prospective evaluation, which means the, it was done on a daily basis by people at the bedside recording uh, very meticulously detailed data of nutrient intake, both in terms of what was prescribed, but also how much was delivered by which route, how much protein, how much calories, how much lipids. And the second piece was that we made sure that sites which enrolled in the study had to have a dedicated dietitian, or if in the absence of a dietitian, someone with knowledge in nutrition so as to be able to decipher these details. And we went through a very tedious process of training uh, and a meticulously designed web-based tool which uh, made it simple, and we tried to limit the amount of time that would be required to fill in these details. So in short, it was a day-to-day -day process with uh, a uh, web-based tool that allowed documentation and then cumulative calculations of the difference between what was prescribed and what was actually delivered so as to give us the adequacy numbers. And just to be clear, the adequacy, the way we defined it is the percentage of what was prescribed that was actually delivered. So what we are talking about in this study is uh, you as a group, uh, if you are a participating site or your dietitian agrees X amount of protein or energy to be delivered to your patient on a daily basis, and what we report is what you find at the end of 24 hours as to having actually being delivered. Uh, and we are saying it was to the tune of less than 50% even at the end of seven days. Yeah, I'm sitting here looking at the numbers. It's, it's pretty dramatic. I mean, it's 38% of energy and 43% of protein was delivered, I mean, despite reasonably aggressive efforts. Yeah, and this is not very surprising, uh, Jeff. We've shown this in single-center studies uh, for the last five to six years in pediatric ICU that we walk away from the bedside presuming that you've prescribed X number of calories or proteins, and you, you think that these will be delivered, but there's so many hindrances, there are so many challenges and, and, and barriers that uh, we don't uh, manage to reach these goals. Uh, and it's fascinating that this you would not accept in any other facet of care that you deliver. You would not uh, accept if after 24 hours someone told you that, I know you prescribed three antibiotics, we gave one, and uh, the rest we did not reach the goal. So it's, it's interesting. I think the question of what is the right prescription is secondary. Here the practice that we found is that we actually are not able to meet what we think the patient needs. I like your antibiotic analogy, but you know, carrying that a little bit further, as far as how long it takes to get people to what we consider to be adequate nutrition, and you were targeting about 48 hours? You know, the, we didn't actually prescribe this. We, we let the individual centers uh, use their judgment because we did not want to interfere with their practice and merely document it. Um, but what we found is uh, that was really heartening that, uh, you know, there were many positive uh, observations. One was exactly as you pointed out, that enteral nutrition was initiated within 48 hours in majority of patients. It, it goes to show that over the past several years we've bought into the concept that enteral nutrition is probably more physiologic and better for our patients when safe and uh, feasible in the post-resuscitation phase. There were a few other positives that we noticed. One was, if you notice on table one, a majority of sites, almost 93% of our sites, have now a dedicated intensive care unit dietitian. And on an average, they are reporting 0.4 full-time equivalent position for every 10 beds. We also found that uh, a third of the units use specific protocols or attempt to make their practice uniform. And finally, it appears that you know, the prescriptions are not far from what would be recommended by major societies. It's the eventual delivery where we fall short. 
I, I like what you um, you continue to carry this antibiotic analogy forward because that's something that I often don't allow the residents to talk about nutritional support, but nutritional therapy. But the the 60 day mortality. I mean, this was another thing that really kind of knocked me out of my chair. You quote that 60 day mortality was lower in patients with a higher percentage of adequacy nutrition, delivery of less than two thirds prescribed energy and protein associated with a higher odds for 60 day mortality. And just for the listeners, quote what those odds ratios are because they're dramatic. No, I agree, uh, Jeff. I had uh, almost a similar experience in terms of you and your chair. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating because, uh, yes, uh, we, we look into various ways of uh, uh, impacting on uh, odds of uh, bad outcomes in our ICU, and we, we spend years trying to look at things which are, uh, some of them pretty exotic, as you would agree. But uh, here we are, uh, and in this study, if you look at Table 6, uh, what we thought is uh, we have a variable which is the adequacy of nutrient delivery, once again, uh, which means what is it that you're delivering or what fraction of what you thought you should deliver are you actually delivering. So if you look at the adequacy, we divide it for sake of uh, clinical application or to extrapolate clinically, we divided these patients into those that met uh, a third of what was written. This is fairly dismal. This is like the one antibiotic rather than three kind of a group. And then uh, the remaining were uh, between a third to two-thirds, and then uh, those that got at least two-thirds in terms of what you prescribe for energy and uh, protein. And it appears that uh, patients receiving less than a third or less than 33.3% of prescribed energy on average during the first 10 days after admission to the PICU had significantly higher odds of mortality compared to the rest. And this increase in intake by just uh, going from 33% to 66% significantly decreases the odds of mortality. The odds ratio that we got was 0.27. And if you go up to 66%, which is two-thirds of what you have prescribed, the odds ratio is 0.14, fairly significant and very interesting uh, magnitude of odds ratio reduction. I, I would say that the, this, this is, of course, an association. Causality cannot be confirmed, but it is a signal that we cannot ignore and uh, needs to be looked at uh, in, with a lot more enthusiasm. And you combine that with the other observation that patients who were in units that had feeding protocols had lower rates of you know, urinary tract infections, ventilator-associated pneumonias, and catheter-related bloodstream infections. You know, whether it's a cause and effect or just an institutional discipline, this is a big difference. I agree, and I hope that uh, we take this further. I hope that this is just the beginning, and uh, and this uh, encourages people to look into their nutrition practice. And if this is uh, indeed something that is beyond just a signal, it is actually a fairly important concept. Feeding a child uh, cannot be denied as uh, an acceptable practice. And we are not talking about theories of whether hypercaloric or hypocaloric. We are talking about trying to meet the goals that you yourself have defined at the bedside. And and it's a low-key intervention, which has a potential for, uh, like you said, fairly dramatic uh, outcomes. So your bottom line, if you're talking to someone who's taking care of critically ill children, and you've got this huge study here, what is it that you want other intensivists in the country or around the world really to know about how they should manage children who have nutritional deficiencies? You know, it is clear uh, within the scope of the results of this study that there is a huge signal uh, that correlates positively with uh, uh, achieving your nutrition goals that the dietitian or a team outlines. So our message has consistently been uh, that uh, right at the outset, this should prompt people to elevate 
the awareness of uh, nutritional intake uh, therapy and its importance in critical care. Uh, we ought to make sure that uh, uh, you know we start uh, generating a huge uh, multi-professional uh, consensus and try to come up with some uniform strategy based on studies such as this one, which uh, which may show some best practices. Clearly. Uh, uh, enteral nutrition is, is desirable, uh, especially in the post-resuscitation phase and uh, when delivered safely with the help of uh, strict uh, watching for side effects. And clearly it, it appears that at least two-thirds of what you prescribed uh, seems to be uh, significantly beneficial. What I would go on to say is that the bigger uh, picture is uh, what, where we go next in terms of uh, our multi-professional commitment. And already the units have dietitians by the bedside. Uh, we argue that uh, in the future, it would be individualized nutrition therapy for each child, and this should be based on assessing the baseline nutritional state. We've seen that a third of our patients are severely malnourished, assessing the severity and metabolic features of illness, which is where uh, there is a big knowledge gap and work needs to be done. But until then, a serial assessment of requirements and focusing on adequacy of not just energy, but probably protein, which is the, uh, the hidden message in this paper. And whilst uh, lean body mass prevention of lean body mass loss is one of our principal goals. Uh, we are to do more to make sure that our patients don't leave the units with a huge cumulative deficit of energy and uh, protein. So given your collaborators, which are, are many, what's on the horizon? What's your next project? You know, uh, following on from this study, the data collection was completed on a huge effort. Going on from this 31 center, 500 patients we've just finished, looking at prospective uh, nutrition and outcomes in uh, 1,300 patients in 63 pediatric ICUs all over the world. Wow. And I'm very excited uh, and uh, eagerly awaiting the data analysis. We've gone a little further in this study to examine and explore our practices in finer detail. And, and as a next step from this, uh, we want to go on to a hypothesis-driven uh, strategy where we can uh, use this platform for collaborative studies and actual intervention. Well, I look forward to learning more from you and, and your, your partners. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Mehta from Boston Children's Hospital, who is publishing in the July edition of Critical Care Medicine a paper entitled Nutritional Practices and Their Relationships to Clinical Outcomes in Critically Ill Children. Dr. Mehta, thank you for joining me on iCritical Care. Thank you so much, Dr. Guy. It was a pleasure. And uh, I'd like you to mention who are your collaborators on this big project so they, I know you were eager to make sure that they get the appropriate amount of recognition. Thank you so much. Again, uh, it, it is not a study that one conducts uh, without a huge group uh, of dedicated people. Above all, it is the sites, the various sites which we've uh, acknowledged in the current paper and so many other sites now, as I mentioned, 63 from all over the world whose uh, site PIs and dietitians do a tremendous job. It is their dedication and, uh, and, and a single focus to promote uh, optimal nutritional practices that makes such a study happen. Lori Beshar uh, is uh, uh, the project coordinator for my current and this study who, who tirelessly works uh, with this entire group and Dr. Highland's uh, group from Canada who have been tremendous in terms of their support uh, for the pediatric ICU nutrition studies that we've initiated here at Boston Children's. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Mehta. Thank you again, Dr. Guy. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Please check our website at www.sccm.org slash care for more episodes or search SCCM in iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. 
Registration is open for SCCM's Pharmacotherapy in Critical Illness Conference, which will be held October 19th and 20th, 2012, in New Orleans, Louisiana, USA. Learn about the latest advances and controversies in the pharmacologic management of critically ill patients. Visit www.sccm.org pharmacotherapy for more information. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is an associate professor of surgery and director of the Regional Burn Center and Acute Operative Services at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. At Vanderbilt, he co-directs a medical student immersion course on critical care physiology, a program he helped develop. He also established a sustainment training program for U.S. combat medics. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.